Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and we're here today with a bunch of friends for the Friday Conversation, and we'll kick it off with some introductions. So, Randy, do you want to start us off? Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. I'm Randy Schroeder. I sometimes go by Randy Nichols Schroeder among a sort of bevy of pen names that I've used over the years. And yeah, my latest novel is called Arctic Smoke. And in my spare time, I'm a professor at Mount Royal University. Oh, thanks, Mike. Yeah. Nice. Prepared. And Mike? Uh, yeah, I'm Mike Thorne. I was taught by Randy Schroeder and uh, read some of his work under this uh, under the bevy of other names. Um, I'm the author of Peel Back and See, Shelter for the Damned and Darkest Hours. Yeah, looking forward to chatting. Yes. Uh, yeah, my name is Neil Howell. I am, uh, like Randy and Mike, I am a writer. Uh, my latest novel, There Are Wolves Here Too, just came out about a month ago. Oh, there's another one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I was also a student of Randy's. Mike and I did our undergrad degrees together. And um, when I am not writing, I teach high school English. Wow, nice. So I, I got to say, I was a little bit intimidated because when I received all of your photos for the thumbnail, you all have immaculate photographs. <laughs> so it's great, pic great author pictures, just really great. So uh, Neil, do you want to tell us about uh, There Are Wolves too? What can you What can you tell us about it? Yeah, um, so this is my second novel. My first novel is called Only Pretty Damned, and it's um, my best attempt at uh, sort of, oh, which Mike has, sort of uh, Only Pretty Damned is like a, my attempt at like a Jim Thompson-esque, uh, James M. Cain sort of traditional noir story. Um, with There Are Wolves Here Too, I feel like I'm still in that wheelhouse. I feel like I still wrote a noir story, a crime fiction story. Um, but this one, I think more than anything else, is a coming-of-age story. So it's about um, a young boy named Robin who's growing up in a fictional Alberta city called Haddington Springs in 1997. And he is one of the last people to see his, little, uh, his friend's little sister before she disappears. Uh, so because he lives in this very tight-knit community, this young girl's disappearance has a ripple effect that really um, finds its way to everybody in the small community and um, in trying to make sense of what happened while the rest of the town is becoming either paranoid or suspicious of one another, um, Robin and his friends, in an attempt to understand what happened, start to uncover some pretty dark truths about their home and about themselves and the people uh, closest to them. Hmm. There's my elevator pitch for that one. Nice. And what is it, what's, what's the feeling like for all of you? What's the feeling like to be working on a book? And pour so much of yourself into it, and it's finally out there. What is that feeling like when it's when it's when it's released, when it's out in the wild? <laughs> hmm. For for me, I'd say uh, an equal mix of joy and fear and anxiousness, just all meshed together. There's a little bit of everything. You're excited that it's done. You're excited to see what people think of it, but you know you pour so much of yourself into it. So there is this sort of element of uh, I don't know. You get kind of on edge, just kind of waiting, twiddling your thumbs and waiting to see what happens when it takes on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what about you, Randy? What's that feeling like for you? You know, I may be an outlier, but I, I, I mean, I've only published three book length works, but each time I sort of, uh, I, I didn't feel much at all. <laughs> so, you know, I, it was this tremendous process of inflationary expectation and nerves and then it comes out, and, and uh, for me, I was just going, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not saying it's disappointment, but there, it's just sort of 
for me, a lot less uh, of any emotion than I, than I literally expected there to be. So I don't know. I think, I think I'm probably an outlier on that one. I hope so. Mike. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I can relate to parts of what both of you guys said. I do feel like the first time I released a book, it was a lot more anticlimactic than I expected. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I expected. I was like, Oh, now, you know, I've, I've done it. And it was just sort of, I don't know, there, there, there was this sort of um, vacant feeling. But I can also relate to what Neil's saying in the sense that, I don't know, I'm always really excited to hear what people think about it and to talk to people about the book if they've read it. Um, yeah. But I also can relate to that feeling of nervousness. I'm like, I hope my parents don't read this. And they're mm -hmm. really supportive, so they always do. And I'm like, fuck. I always write down a list of stories on the inside page for my mom. Like, don't read these ones. And hopefully she, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I should have mentioned that. I, my, my whole family, my whole clan is on both sides is, is Mennonite brethren, which is for those of you who don't know that reference, it's a, like a, a super conservative sort of fundamentalist Christian thing. I don't, I don't even tell any of them, including my parents. So I like the fact that you write for your mother, which ones are appropriate for sensibilities. It leaves about two from each collection. To... Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's good. And I think with with a book, it's a little different because uh, it takes a while for people to read it and to get feedback. So it's not like a movie where two hours later they're they're giving you feedback. It's a little different with the book. It takes a while for it to come back to you. So mm -hmm. that must make it a little, you know, a little weird. Yeah. That feeling of uh, sort of, is this it though? I can also relate to, I don't know if you guys have ever thought of it this way, but um, if you remember certain milestone birthday parties from when you're a little kid and you wake <laughs> up or not parties, but like you wake up going like, Oh, I'm 10 today. I'm in double digits. And then realizing that you feel the exact same in every possible capacity i think there's some similarity there too yeah you know, like the day after christmas yeah yeah that's it maybe that's next it. year yeah <laughs> no i'm magic. still anxious and insecure what is this yeah. about yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. i wonder if you guys can relate to i was feeling the other day like i'm i don't know i i, I keep saying i shouldn't jinx this but i feel like i'm getting pretty close to being done with the next novel Oh, and I'm feeling kind of sad in a way. Like I really liked spending time with these characters. And I, I've never, I, I don't think I've ever had that before. Maybe because I'm Shelter for the Damned, it, uh, it, I'm kind of sticking mostly to a character who's not very fun to be around. It's, it's kind of an anxious experience writing it. But I'm, I, I'm actually feeling sad about saying goodbye. It sounds kind of sentimental and weird, but I actually had that feeling the other night and it was good to me. Hmm. I think the answer is to start to make it the first in the series. This is this will be your goosebumps, Mike. <laughs> I've been waiting for it. <laughs> yeah. We did have a couple of comments. Uh, Austin has dropped by, and our friend uh, Chris Mullen is here. Happy Friday, Chris and Chadia. Hello, and Aaron. Hello. <clears throat> and uh, Shannon Berry says, "Randy, your beard is immaculate." <laughs> Thank you. I just. <laughs> I just trimmed it this afternoon. Nice. So nice of you to say. And uh, Scott McGregor is also here. That's quite a beard. <laughs> it's Malbillion. 
And uh, Chris has a question. Loving the guitar collection as well. Impromptu gig. That's where they live. I don't think I don't think they're coming down today. Unless no, no. I was going to say unless Steve insists, but even so, I don't think. They're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the uh, so you guys have all known each other for a while. Then it sounds like you have a, a friendship that's gone on a while. What what is it like for you, Randy, to to have taught them and then you see that see their success and that they're they're writing their books what's that like from from your perspective yeah that's a great question it's it's um in my opinion it's by far the best part of teaching right and you know i don't i don't know what the ratio is well i don't even know how you would gauge who's successful and who isn't but when you see uh, especially writing students when you see them go on and well, first of all, write really good stuff. So, so demonstrate that they've mastered the craft to the extent that they're, you know, as good, if not better than, than you are. But then also to see them be rewarded for that craft. It's terrific. It's some, um, I mean, it's strange because he asked us just a few minutes ago what it's, what it's like when the book is published. That might be kind of empty of emotion for me, but when students go on and publish stuff, I find it very exciting. It's, uh, hmm. it's, um, terrifically fulfilling for sure well and i've got to say i mean i wouldn't have i think without randy i don't know where i would have gone as a writer because i didn't i didn't really pursue many writing courses during my undergrad i think i felt some degree of self-awareness around or self-consciousness i guess around genre being into stephen king and things like that um and i always carried that around in academic spaces i think for the most part i've gotten I kind of relieved myself of that, but Randy was kind enough to allow me to do like a directed readings course, which is more of a directed writings course. Like you introduced me to a lot of essays on the writing process to narrative craft. Um, I had heard a lot of people kind of, uh, kind of brush aside uh, the story, the book story by McKee. And it was actually tremendously useful for me to break down how does story work? What is the structure of story? So, yeah, huge thanks for that, for sure. Oh, you're too kind. Thank you. That's true. Yeah, you guys have both sort of, um, it's, I feel like we're, we're still bouncing ideas off each other in that same, like Randy, I found to be such an inspiration when I was taking his class. Um, and then anytime we meet up, just in terms of you guys, oh, do you guys hear that? I think it's my end. Oh, yeah. Sirens. Yeah, sorry about oh. that. <laughs> You're in the, the apocalypse is starting over in your end and working its way towards us. <laughs> exactly. um, but just like anytime we meet up, just in terms of like the influence that, that you guys have, I, we, I feel like we all have post-it notes and pens out all the time because we're talking yeah. about the stuff we're reading and there's just this frantic scribbling going on during every one of our, our chats. But, you know, it's writing such a solitary gig, so it's cool to just maintain these connections and have people to bounce ideas off of and share your influences with. And on that note too, Randy, I should mention, I just got my first Crumley book today. In the oh, book. good. I forget yeah. which one I even ordered. Something Kiss, The Last Kiss. Last Good Kiss. Last Good Kiss, yes. Yeah. So eager to dive into that one. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Mm. <laughs> we did have a question from Aaron. Uh, how do you balance teaching teaching loads with writing? <laughs> That's a good question. I actually now I'm on a half sabbatical, so the balance is really easy because all I do is wake up and, and write. <clears throat> uh, I find I, I'd be interested to know, Aaron, if, if you're a teacher as well. 
and Neil, I know you are. I find I can't really do that much when I'm actually in the semester. Like, especially if I'm marking, I, I don't, I don't, it's not that I don't have the time. I don't have the energy to actually do much writing. I'll record ideas if they come. So I have to kind of fit it in the spaces between. And by the spaces between, I, I generally mean not like at the end of a teaching day, but when the semester's over, when I'm not marking. And, and reading for and preparing and what have you. So, you know, that means summer, sort of Christmas, um, reading breaks, etc. And it's, it's hard. Yeah, there's no doubt there the two, you'd think the two would align really nicely, it would be a good job for a writer, but I'm not always sure it is there's a, the, the sort of type and style and intensity of mental energy you need are quite similar. So it almost feels like ending a teaching day and then doing more of the same. I don't know, Neil, what do you think? Um, I, yeah, I find it difficult right now, especially I have a, my wife and I have a one-year-old son. So that's really thrown a, my, my routine is no longer a routine, um, which I'm fine with. But um, I think otherwise I've just, I've, I've always been really good at compartmentalizing things. So I was able to, um, during these first couple books, just, uh, really give myself as much of a rigorous routine as I was able to. Like I'd get up really early or weekends, I would get up really early and have set aside time. Um, holidays and yeah, like Christmas and um, like summer holidays are those are like your golden times where you're not bound by a schedule. But I think it was just establishing habits and then also giving myself uh not really quotas, but just being realistic with how much I could accomplish. I didn't want to just crank something out for the sake of having um, written something and then have it go, not go anywhere. I, I was really trying to be cognizant of what I was trying to accomplish. So that helped. And Mike, you're a, you teach as well, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I do. I'm not currently teaching. I'm kind of co-teaching a, a year long um, intro to modern lit course, <clears throat> but I'm not teaching this semester. I'm just sitting in on the other instructor's lectures and kind of watching what she's doing. I had one guest lecture this semester. Um, but yeah, no, I can, um, I, I definitely can relate to what Randy's saying. I do think there's something about the mental energy piece. I did once when I was teaching college, uh, composition in English, I would wake up at five in the morning every day and write until seven, get ready for work, go teach. Um, but I found like, I, I kind of crashed after a while. I found it really hard to sustain that. So it is a, it's a difficult thing to manage for sure. I should add that for, for me anyway, um, finally after really decades, um, coming to a kind of writing process that works for me, but more importantly, a writing process that's, um, highly articulated in that I have, I know I could separate out the, the very small tasks that I have to do and know quite clearly what kind of energy I need for each of those tasks. That's really helped too. And now I can kind of slice the writing process into sometimes even into a teaching day because I know what I need to do and I need what I know what kind of um, resources I need to complete that particular task. So that's really helped me. I don't know about you too, but. I, well, I do kind of know about you too, but not everyone does. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had the uh, level of self-awareness and introspection as you have. I, I feel like my writing process, so much of it is just like 
sitting down and groping around in the darkness and just, you know, having only the faintest notion of what I'm trying to accomplish at any given time. But that's probably why my um, editing for me is such a, an uphill battle because I, I overwrite or I, I have to kind of um, look at the different tangential things that have happened while I'm writing and figure out how to narrow the focus to whatever it is I'm trying to accomplish. But yeah, Randy, I've totally, I'm envious of your focus for sure, man. Well, you're a natural. That's what I'm envious of. Sure, I'll, sure but okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Randy sent us uh, some pictures of his work in progress. And how many binders full is it you have of notes? And like your outline is longer than the novel sometimes you said, right? You, or, usually, yeah. Uh, well, you yeah. know what? Uh, you can, oh no, sorry. The corkboard's empty now. So <laughs> never mind the corkboard. <laughs> I don't know. I have two, two file, uh, what do you call it? File boxes full of files and then a big well a big binder that looks like where's my camera there that's <laughs> sort of cur the current chap it's ridiculous that's i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i i do believe aaron teaches history if i'm not mistaken aaron okay. correct me if i'm wrong cool. uh and uh, tr trying to write for the holidays right. and chris uh, i can't even get a youtube video recorded mid-semester never mind the bigger projects <laughs> Here, yeah, yeah. It do, don't you find though it kind of helps you stay sane in a way? Like I do, I don't feel right when I don't have something going on. So even yeah. if during a busy semester I don't touch it as much, I like knowing that it's there in yeah. some shape and some mm -hmm. form, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I am definitely closer to Neil in terms of process, uh, kind of groping in the dark. I like that description. But I'm, yeah, I'm, there might have yeah. been a better way for me to put that. But, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay, yeah. let's say fumbling yeah. in the dark. Yeah, fumbling. Yeah, yeah fumbling in the dark. Yeah. Um, yeah, fumbling. Yeah. <laughs> fumbling in the dark. Yeah. That's what I heard, and I was like, no. <laughs> Maybe we should just avoid any hand-related metaphors. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I'm finding like uh, this time around with the novel I'm working on, I'm really enjoying editing, which is weird. Hmm. Like, I'm really excited yeah. to edit. I don't know. That's a new feeling for me. You, normally, I'm like, "Fuck!" Now I have to make sense of this thing. No, I, I hear you. Yeah, I enjoy editing. It's uh, I I wait for my edits with like some degree of anticipation um, and also dread. Again, there's a common theme here with me. But um, yeah, I always enjoy just even seeing. It's cool because you don't know your own blind spots. And um, my editor for there are wolves here too, uh, Claire Kelly with New West, with uh, Randy and I are both with. Uh, have both published books with New West. Um, her and I were really on the same wavelength. So I was always really eager to see her feedback because like 99% of the time we we clicked or she was able to find some sort of a, a blind spot that I wasn't aware of. But yeah, I always looked forward to it. Yes, and our friend Layla is also here. Uh, it, uh, Layla is an English, English professor. Mm. Uh, this is affirming to hear other teachers discuss mental energy and writing. I end up writing shorter pieces and articles mm -hmm. mid-semester even though I want to write longer uh, book length drafts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my old chair at the university I used to work for, um, he was just stunned when I had a novel out and had had written it during, I don't know, a, couple, a, a few years, but during uh, work. So I think that's pretty common, a pretty common feel. And I don't know if this is true, but I've heard, like at, at the university I work at, uh, my creative writing can count as my scholarship. So in other words, it can count as a, a required part of my job. 
And I've heard that at some universities, even in English departments, even for creative writing instructors, that's not necessarily the case, which yeah. sounds ludicrous and probably is. But yeah, it's it's tough. <laughs> oh man, that's insane. I mean, that's why. Is I that chose... weird? Yeah. yeah that's, I mean, that's why I chose to do a PhD in creative writing, not yeah. English literature, because I thought if I keep just focusing on uh, literary analysis, although I love it, it's also a different kind of thinking. Maybe love it is an, is an exaggeration. There are things about it I appreciate. I love writing. I am a writer. So I yeah. want to find something that affords me the ability to do that while also paying the bills. So hmm. hopefully I can find a program that is sane about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Aaron is a, is a history teacher. Yeah. So okay. that would write. Cool. And uh, bef so before we went uh, and just want to say hello to uh, Bookends and Biscuits, thanks for coming by from the UK. And uh, before we went live, there, we were a little short discussion about point form writing. And I have to oh, say, I'm not familiar with it. So what is point form writing? Well, I don't know if it even is a thing. It's just something I stumbled onto because I've, um, for years, I've been trying to figure out a way. You know what? Maybe I should back up a bit and explain my axioms here. I believe, so not maybe not all your viewers do, but I believe as a writer that the uh, the, the fundamental units or the stuff of writing is not actually language or the stuff of story narrative, uh, not poetry, but of narrative. It's not language. It's actually beats or turns. It's, it's uh, structural stuff, right? So to me, it's probably likely that a story is going to end up in some linguistic form, but not inevitable. So I've been trying for years to figure out a way for myself to actually get the language out of the way when I'm if that makes any sense, when I'm constructing and shaping a story so that I can kind of uh, see with as much clarity as possible what the actual beats are, what the sort of emotional turns and reversals and, and movements and, and rhythms, I guess, rhythms and, and compositional pieces of the text are. So I just, uh, I don't know, about a month ago, I thought, well, what would happen if I just quite literally cut out as much language as I could and I don't mean you know, suddenly I was writing in in uh, icons that may be coming, but <laughs> so I wasn't just hey, <laughs> that's that's probably all the way. No, so I thought you know if I if I cut out as much of the the linguistic stuff as I can, and I'm still I mean I'm still working with language, but I'm what I'm working with is um, phrases, right? I'm not working with sentences, and I'm not working with modifiers or descriptive bits i'm just putting down phrases that describe as succinctly as possible what the rhythmic or or structural component is right there and i it, it may not work for anyone else but for me it's uh it's really working well i i suddenly don't have all that linguistic stuff in the way and i can see what the rhythm is and then for, for me, going back and just kind of adding in a bit of language, and maybe there's some description here, that's that's a necessary detail, but it's not the most important detail. And again, that's that's my own particular view of story, uh, may not be shared. So it's been working for me. I don't know if anyone has ever done it before, but it's working for me. I mean, you've got me thinking about the function of rhythm in sentences, though, too, right? Because even down to each individual sentence, there is a sort of cadence. It's like, 
Yeah. So in a way it's thinking, I don't know, there's a kind of um, way that the micro and the macro aspects of the process are yeah. working. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and I should also say that for me, this might be a bit contentious, <clears throat> but for me, language is, I don't mean for me personally, I mean, to me, or in my opinion, for anybody, the language is the easy part. I, I think a facility, uh, even a beauty or a stylistic facility with language, that's not a terrifically difficult skill, I don't think. The skill of being able to construct both the macro and then all the way down fractally to the micro units of story that that to me is hard and i think that's reflected in the fact that so many people fail at it so many films so many um mainstream novels even fail at it <laughs> uh, to me and again this may be contentious and people may want to argue and that's that's fine but to me language is just a matter of do you have enough time to groom it and some some people might be out there thinking wait a minute are you saying that you think poetry is easier than story? Uh, yes, I definitely, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> That's my opinion. My poet friends are going to come at you, Randy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm super fussy about language, probably to a detriment. I 100% agree that the most difficult thing is plot, is story, without a doubt to me as a writer. I mean, for me as a writer, that is by far the most arduous part of the process is determining how the thing, yeah, the rhythms of the thing and, and does it make sense and does it all fit together. But I am very fussy with language, um, probably to a fault. And sometimes that might get in the way of focusing on the macro or story. I don't know. How about you, Neil? Because your I, new book is well, very plot. Driven. Yeah, but I, with both my books, I, I'm not much of a plotter. So um, I was actually going to ask you how that maybe factors in, um, in terms of like plot, like you and I both don't really plot, like, am I correct with, with that? Like we, um, with my writing, I don't even really have certain themes. I'll usually have a setting and certain tones that I think of. And then um, I feel like I'm, well, I'm figuring out plot theme is something that sort of <clears throat> starts to take shape as well um but yeah i wonder if um if i don't know if one has to do with the other maybe or i just wonder how like plot being the difficult thing like how do we write these stories then yeah i, I mean I, I i wonder if you're the same in the sense that we both i mean all three of us love film we all love music i have no musical abilities these guys are actual musicians but i think there's something about loving all of these forms. I was talking to a friend the other day and I feel like for me as a writer, I'm after a certain kind of texture and that, that might seem like a weird word, but yeah, it's a certain atmosphere, a certain texture, mm -hmm. like that's what brings me into the story. And then I, I sort of find yeah. the plot, but it's often but, through revision, right? Isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Like most of my revision is making sure that the plot lines up, but I wonder if it's like a subconscious fear because I can say, oh, my process is that I just kind of feel it out or not, you know, venturing into the darkness and we'll, we'll see what we uncover, not grope. Um, but um, is it because I just have this like fear or aversion to plotting? Like, I don't know what the plot is until I've spent two years writing the book. And then there's this, this strenuous amount of backpedaling and going back and trying to make it this, this focused thing. I'm not sure. You know what my feeling is about you two guys. <laughs> so can I do that? I think you're yeah. both actually really good at plot, but maybe, 
um, maybe you're not articulating that to yourselves because I think, well, for me anyway, plot, uh, there's no such thing as plot in the abstract, right? Plot always arises out of character and it arises well out of character when the, when the author knows who the character is in terms of, you know, all those cliches, motivation, um, psychological complexity, etc. So I think both of you are, are really skilled at creating characters and plot will grow out of what characters do and why they do it. Right. I mean, I don't think there's, I don't know of any writer that's ever been able to concoct a plot in the abstract and then populate the plot with characters. I mean, not even the creakiest James Bond film would, would work that way. Right. Yeah. So I think you should give yourselves credit. You're, you're just, um, maybe you're just naturally skilled at plot where the rest of us have to uh, not grope toe suck in the dark. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. That's, that's the term we were looking for. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. yeah. Toe suck in the T T S O N D. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mason on the dark says, I find uh, that both mediums have their challenges. Poetry doesn't come as easily to me. Yeah, I, I was being a little wry. I shouldn't have said that. That was I don't I don't even know that much about I was speaking from ignorance. I think you should volunteer twenty hours of community service at some sort of poetry convention or simple. Yeah. Like getting the coffee and donuts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. And uh, Robin uh, had a comment. Uh, not sure if I missed, but the book that recently won the Arthur C. Clarke Award was a poetry storybook and involved different languages. That could be. Where do we place Paradise Lost? You know, that's just like the penultimate yeah. poetry and story at their finest. Yeah. Mm. Or Beowulf or. Yeah. Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and uh, Mason in the Dark says, uh, Toe Sucking in the Dark is my OnlyFans channel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would be our next <laughs> album title. Yeah, <laughs> got to write that down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Future book uh, book titles. So, Randy, I see a lot of instruments behind you. What What's your favorite instrument to play? Uh, probably the guitar. I mean, I've played the guitar since I was 15, so that's a long time. That's many decades. Um, but I recently I really really getting into playing the bass, uh, which Neil is an accomplished bass player. But there's uh, Neil, there's something about the bass, right? Because it um, it's probably the most or can be the most rhythmic string instrument of all. And there's something super cool about uh, for me anyway. There's rhythm is the most interesting aspect of music to me. So um, there, there's something really fun about digging into the the bass and, and trying to hold together both the, the melodic lines or the, you know, what they sometimes call the tonic, but also get that rhythmic sensibility. And I've also been playing a lot of mandolin lately. Ma mandolin to me is the forgotten rhythmic stringed instrument because it's got such, if you don't know um, instrumentation, else, the, the string tension is so tight that you can get a lot of uh, rhythmic sort of chuk chuk kind of sounds and yeah. i i'm i've been wondering lately why isn't the mandolin the main instrument in funk so maybe that's coming but, yeah. right yeah <laughs> mandolin <laughs> funk bands that's what we need to see <laughs> uh what about you neil what's your do you have a favorite instrument yeah literally the only instrument i play um is bass so i've been playing that since i was like 14 um 
yeah, I I love playing bass. I'm in, in awe and envious of Randy's um, ability to pick up instruments and just shred on them. Um, but bass has just always been the instrument for me. Yeah. Nice. But I'm curious about mandolin now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Leila had a comment. Uh, what do the panelists think about the NaNoWriMo project that is popular in November to write 50,000 words in 30 days? Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> all power to people who want to do that. I, I don't know. I'm impressed if people are able to write 50,000 words in 30 days, but I know if I were to write 50,000 words in 30 days, they would probably be awful, but maybe that's just kind of, um, accepted as part of the process. And then the editing comes later. I have never done NaNoWriMo. I just don't like the sound of it. Even I don't like the, the like NaNoWriMo. I don't want to participate in anything yeah. that sounds like NaNoWriMo. So, but no, if, if, if it's something you like all power to you and, uh, yeah, Godspeed. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, I didn't actually know what it was <laughs> until someone at my writer's group said, Are you ever into NaNoWriMo? I'm like, I don't, is that, like that sounds perverse to me. <laughs> Probably not. And and there's a lot of there's a lot of writer stuff, especially online writer stuff, and even acronyms that I just don't know. I'm I'm quite naive that way. I was gonna say part of my process is to just nano rimo in the dark and kind of find the plot <laughs> that way. Yeah, I've I've also never done it. I totally agree with my power to people who who can do it. It's just my process is so sluggishly slow by comparison so uh there i feel like that's one thing to do and i'm just kind of slogging away on a different track but it, i think it's cool when people get really into it the few people that i know who try it um i'm always in awe of just how committed they are to to making it happen and just like the fact that someone can come up with thirty thousand words in or fifty thousand words rather in such a a small amount of time where it will take me a year to write 50,000 words is impressive to me, but just not my thing. Isn't there a publisher in Canada, Canada that uh, either uh, does or used to have a contest where you write a novel in seven days, I think. Wow. And then the, then you submit it and the winner gets it published. I can't remember what the, the press, but hmm. so there are people who can do it. In seven day, wow! That's do they edit I, it before they it publish it? <laughs> I don't oh. that I don't remember, but you'd oh. think, right? <laughs> yeah, I think you need some. Yeah, I need some work. Yeah, uh, Shannon had a comment as as a bunch of writers who produce generally unconventional stuff. Do you have anything you would you have written that is, you think is too weird to send out? That's a great question. Yeah, <laughs> I <laughs> now do we focus on? Do you think it's too weird or was it too weird? Uh, Mike, I feel like you should go first. I mean, hi, Shannon. First of all, Shannon's great. We all know Shannon. Um, uh, too, I mean, I, I work within the capital W weird tradition. So the weirder, the better. You know, I, I, I've written stuff that's too bad to send out. Um, definitely. So if we want to use that as like a, a synonym for weird, like weirdly bad, um, there are definitely <laughs> pieces that I just couldn't work into something that I was satisfied with. That's really the only case that I wouldn't send something out. Like um, 
I basically try to work everything I write into something that I'm pleased with. And I send out, I don't, I really don't throw away a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. A couple pieces that were originally in the manuscript for darkest hours, the original publisher said, I want this book, but I don't want this story and that story. And in retrospect, I'm very glad that he did because I look back at those stories and I think, Jesus Christ, I was going to publish those. So but that's the only case when um, that has happened for me. Yeah, and this, if I'm spending time on it, I at least have the intention of getting it out there. But um, anything that hasn't is probably just bad. It's <laughs> plain bad. So it's I, I've never like written anything and been like, oh, it's too bizarre for this world. And then I, <laughs> I lock it up and throw it to the bottom of a lake or anything. Um, just, I, <laughs> we love that shit, the weird yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I write pretty much everything with the intention of it going somewhere. And if it hasn't, there's good reason. Now, I've been told by many editors, I'd say probably upwards of 90%, that it's too weird to publish. <laughs> yeah, you're the person to answer this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I mean, I've told this story to you guys many times, but I, I think in the late 90s, yeah, the late 90s, I decided I would collect all my rejection letters. Mm. And I stopped at 500, so. Wow. I'm sure I'm getting close to that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's a sentiment I'm very familiar with, an editorial sentiment for sure. Wow. But would you ever screen yourself, Randy? Like, would you ever write something and think, I can't put this out there, I, I went too far or whatever it might be? Has that ever happened? No. No, I, I, I'm with Neil on that one. I, I've never sort of sat in my dark. <laughs> Nano, Nano room. In my dark room. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody will be able to take this. I can't unleash this. No, I think never, it, never happened. No. Have you guys, if you've read the forward to um, Pet Cemetery by Stephen King, that one edition where he mm. talks about mm -hmm. when he reached the end of the novel, how he's like, this is when I finally went too far. Yeah. But the fact that he reached the end of the novel by the time he hit that conclusion, I just imagine him, like, was he just writing it and then it occurred to him like, and the end. Oh, God, what have I done? Or... <laughs> Was it was it just him typing away and being like, ah, oh, what am I doing? No, ah, stop. Right? So I'm always, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. Like Frank, Tabitha, Tabitha, restrain fire. my hand. I mean, don't you think like when you're <laughs> don't you think when you're going into uncomfortable territory, that's when the best art happens? I mean, it's a cliche probably, but I think that's yeah, exactly. that's something I, exactly. I believe. Yeah. And Shet, we should say, because we know Shannon, that, that uh, her she does multiple types of art. It's pretty weird, but in a good way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I don't want to see it any other way. Yeah, Shannon's great. Mm -hmm. And Mason in the Dark said, uh, writing 50K in 30 days is easy. I just have to not eat, sleep, both, or do anything other than write until my fingers bleed. That's all. No, no, no problem. No big no deal. Problem. Uh huh. <laughs> and, uh, Robin said, uh, NaNoWriMo is really popular on Twitter. And I think that's part of it is having that group to kind of push each other and yeah. having the, you know, kind of somebody to cheer you on. Mm -hmm. I hear it's popular on OnlyFans too, as well. <laughs> Watching people write under stuff. Yes. <laughs> oh, I, I, I like to watch people write. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's someone out there who does. It's got to be, right? You guys can make a killing on OnlyFans. Uh, Austin said, I'm, I'm, very, I'm a very novice writer, but I was wondering if you all had some tips on writing dialogue 
since that is easily where I am the weakest. Thank you in advance. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. Randy, you brought up something interesting once on dialogue that really stuck with me. It's um, watching just in terms of um, when do characters tell each other something that they already know, right? Mm-hmm. Like some of the most painful dialogue to read is not just the expository, but just when people are um, like reminding it's, it sounds like the room it's like, but you love Johnny because he's your husband and he's a loyal person like that kind of stuff. Just, I don't know. I think sparse dialogue is, is where it's at. I'm a minimalist, I think with dialogue. Yeah, it's a tricky, I mean, we, I think we all sympathize or identify with you, Austin, because that's a, that's really difficult. And the, you know, the cliche I think among screenwriters is, is uh, characters are not people. Dialogue is not conversation. So uh, f- for my two cents, I, I would say, I kind of back in and say, the thing you don't want to do is try and provide a, a transcript of how people really talk. Like the worst thing you could do is, you know, go to a shop, coffee shop and kind of listen to how people know, right? But yet it's got to sound real. So it's a really tricky it's a really tricky paradox. And ideally you want to give each character their own distinctive voice. But if you actually, you know, took the, the dialogue and put it in a linguistic transcript and had a, say a linguist look at it, they'd say, this is absolutely nothing like how real people speak. And yet on the page, it's like, yeah, that's how that person would speak. And I, I wish I had more, even more specific advice, but I guess I could recommend and I get no kickback um robert mckee's book called dialogue is pretty good i found but more um better organized than story i mean it's really interesting i was just on plagued by visions the other day with my friend aaron vance someone asked this exact same question and i sort of fumbled a response so i'll try to come up with something different this time um I mean, something I discovered with the book I'm working on now, there were sections where I, it was a little too exposition heavy. Certain things had to be revealed. I think it's okay to get the exposition kind of clunky exposition stuff down in a rough draft. This is when editing comes in handy. You know what the character is actually saying. And then you can kind of find a more abstracted coded way for them to say it. Because this is actually often how we communicate. We don't come right out and say, hey, you're too um invasive at parties or something we find a kind of more abstracted way or yeah you know you like hey todd you you know your your armpits smell really bad you might find some other like coded way of saying these things so i do find sometimes just having it very clear and direct in the rough draft is perfectly okay and then um but is what i said on juan's channel and i'll just say it again is i think if you really know your characters going in dialogue comes more easily and we could all probably also recommend novels that we think have especially good dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love the way Don DeLillo writes dialogue, and it's it's like how aliens would speak. There's nothing yeah. human, about it, <laughs> but it's it's like my favorite dialogue. You know, I think too. This is probably probably a cliche at this point, but I think too, uh, studying both playwrights and, and screenwriters yeah. might even be more efficient or, or a faster yeah. route. Totally. Than, than novelists. Mm-hmm. And um, just off the top of my head, some of the earlier Woody Allen films, 
I think can yield a lot of insight into how to make that dialogue crackle. I'm thinking of Annie Hall because in Annie Hall, the characters speak to each other in very, usually very short sentences. And the sentences, like Mike was saying, they never mean exactly what they mean on the surface, right? And you could almost do a, you could almost do a clip where what they say um, out loud is contrasted with what they mean in a in a subtitle. There's always a, it makes what they say kind of makes sense emotionally, but the subtext mm-hmm. is slightly different. And I think you know even more than the language one uses, making that that kind of tension or friction between the subtext, even just the emotional subtext, and then the explicit words, that gives the dialogue a kind of crackle that that readers will pick up on, even though they might not, you know, they might not be thinking, oh, wait, he really means this, but they sort of get it. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mike, I like what you said about abstraction too, and going, going along with what Randy said as well, just like keeping that in mind and that readers are, as, assume that they're as smart as you are, right? So in terms of just picking yeah. up on the, the subtleties and nuances of language, um, sometimes the, the beauty of it lies in the abstraction and there's that, I think there's sort of a joy to be found in connecting those dots when they're there for you. For sure. I, and also I just wanted to pick up what Randy was talking about with listening to conversations in coffee shops and things like that. I think if you're a writer or maybe I should just speak for myself when I'm engaged in communication or listening to conversation, it might be partially because I'm a writer. I do pick up on the kind of energy more than mm. anything. I pick up on the implications. I pick up on the subtext. Yeah. That's the interesting stuff. The ums and uhs and half-finished clauses, like that That doesn't work in prose. You want to retain the reality of the energy, um, but for it to work in prose. So it is It is a difficult balance to manage. But mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's William Gibson, the, the author of Neuromancer and the peripheral and all that stuff. Uh, he, he was describing how he came up with his, his dialogue and he said he would for, for Neuromancer back in the 80s. And he said he would go into arcades. I don't know if everyone knows what an arcade is, but I hope you do. And he said, I wouldn't actually steal the language, but I would, uh, how do you put it, groove on the poetry. So I think that's what, what you were referencing there. And the other thing too, you know, when it comes to dialogue, I, I wouldn't be afraid to just um, read good books, on craft books on the subject. I know there are some good articles by Orson Scott Card I'm not sure off the top of my head where you'd find them, but some good articles with really practical ideas about how to sharpen the dialogue. One that springs to mind off the top of my head is he said, sometimes it's interesting if characters don't respond directly to each other. Some character will ask a question and the other character doesn't provide an answer. They see something else. And as an author, you know why. And the reader might not know explicitly, but it just gives us that sizzle. So I wouldn't be afraid of looking to uh, to good good instruct good craft instruction. Hmm. Really interesting. And uh, Shannon said, "Well, that's where you and I differ." <laughs> so it sounds like <laughs> Shannon's had some felt like she's gone too far sometimes. <laughs> Those are the stories I want to read. Yeah, as you know, Bob. Yeah, that's that's what you're talking <laughs> yeah. about, Neil. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like well, as you know, Bob, when we were on that case before, <laughs> we are in fact married. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the great question, Austin. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. And Drew, is your happy Friday? I'm a little late, so I apologize if this has already been discussed, but I was wondering if there are any stories 
that were formative in pushing you down the writing writer path? For me, um, Stephen King, for sure. Um, a lot, pretty much anything by him, but I think Salem's Lot was the one that really helped light the spark. And then um, all the work of Raymond Chandler, but um, The Big Sleep, the first novel that I read by him was really formative in making me want to write. Just in terms of going back to dialogue and style, that was, um, and I see also Billy Wilder's work, Sunset Boulevard, uh, Double Indemnities mentioned here in the chat as well. But um, that sort of golden age noir stuff was something that I just found so cool and stylish. And um, it just made me want to try to emulate that. And if I'm talking about Chandler as well, I'm just thinking about dialogue here too. Um, I guess that a lot of his intention for writing was to just experiment with language. So as much as he's associated with being um, this, this guy who uh, was a crime writer and a pulp writer, it really just came from a desire to have fun with American, what he thought of his street language at the time. But yeah, Chandler's huge influence on me for sure. Even though I don't think my writing is anything like Chandler's, I'm always, you know, thinking what, thinking about Chandler while I write. In the dark. Mm -hmm. In the dark. <laughs> well, I nano, what was it? Nanobot? <laughs> Not me, and my, me and my nanobots. Yeah. Yeah. What about you guys? Well, I, this is a, a little embarrassing, but the first the first fiction I really grooved on madly was the Hardy Boys. So I I started with the kind of crime fiction, but then like Neil, I really picked up on a, a lot of noir and, and noir stuff. And then by the time I was a teenager and I read William Gibson's Neuromancer, I was like, what? You can take hard-boiled language and noirish tropes and use it in other genres? And the, you know that was then I was off to the races. As we used to say, it's a hard question to answer, hey, because I feel yeah. like there are different books that were very formative at different times in my life, like the books that got me interested in reading. And I don't think one can write, certainly not write well, if one doesn't read a lot, would be J.R.R. Tolkien and yeah. C.S. Lewis. Like, I love the fantasy stuff as a kid, like Neil, you know, as a teenager, Stephen King was huge. For me, the gateway was Pet Cemetery. Um, but then in like my late teens, early 20s, I discovered Kathy Koja, uh, read The Cipher, and it just kind of broke everything open for me and really reformulated the way I thought how I might be able to approach the genre. Um, Hubert Selby Jr. was another one in high school when it just the viciousness and the kind of the, the music of the language, um, the, the intensity of the books. Um, that was something I was like, I, I want to write like that. And like Neil said about Chandler, I don't think I write anything like these people, but they're all over my DNA as a reader and as a writer. So Jim Thompson as well. Another one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ditto. Ditto Thompson. So good. Uh -huh. And uh, Carlos, our friend Carlos is here watching double, uh, double Edenemy by Billy Wilder opened a whole new world for me when it comes to dialogue, uh, yeah. nor at its best. Cheers amigos. That's my favorite. I watch double indemnity at least a couple times a year. It's a, who, who it's a comfort movie. Do you remember Chand the, uh, Raymond Chandler did this? Chandler, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Holy shit, I didn't. Yeah. I forgot yeah. that. Yeah, he Isn't also, that weird? It's so I weird. Watch it. One of the best parts of the movie is Chandler makes a cameo. So yeah. he's just this sort of disgruntled-looking guy sitting in the insurance office. But, I haven't seen yeah. it since I was, I was like thirteen, and at the time, I like Chandler wasn't on my radar. So holy yeah. shit, 
yeah. That's one Isn't of those that wild? Oh, yeah. Chaz are adapting to crazy. Yeah. That's it's wilder. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, that's... Yeah, no kidding. And it's funny too because Chandler, I think, loathed Kane on some level. Like I remember reading a quote, and I'm going to botch it in my paraphrase, but Chandler referred to Kane's writing as uh, calling him a dirty little boy with his head in the gutter. So <laughs> I'm assuming it was the paycheck that enticed him to go write this. But uh, like going back to what we talked about, uh, the dialogue in novels, but then also in in films, not being something that's supposed to exactly replicate real life dialogue. Um, double indemnity is just that to a T. Nobody yeah. talks like that. Like yeah. Edward G. Robinson in that film is just this. <laughs> he's he's like a caricature of a caricature almost at times, but just like the dialogue and his delivery is so slick and so cool that it yeah. sets the tone for the story. And that's what makes it so engaging is just this sort of snappy style that everybody has um, uh, speaking to one another, right? The, the double meaning behind everything, all the innuendo, which I think some people misread as being tacky or cheesy, but I think it just sets the tone for the genre so perfect, uh, perfectly. But yeah, love Double Indemnity. Yeah. Can I indulge in a noir nerd question now? I, since since Chandler adapted Kane, do you guys know if James M. Kane ever wrote screenplays? Because I love his novels. I don't know if he did. I don't I've got to look into that. Yeah. Because yeah, I feel like he'd sure. be great at it. I mean, Postman yeah. always ranks twice as one of the most perfectly constructive books I've ever read, I think. Like mm -hmm. yeah. Hmm. yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not either. Yeah. It's interesting when you look at that era of like just who ended up writing screenplays, like Faulkner wrote yeah, The Big no. Sleep, and you're just like, oh, they just got William Faulkner to <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I heard Fitzgerald um, just yeah. like uh, tried to break into the, but he couldn't figure it out the way Faulkner could. Yeah. Um, I could see that being a disaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's your 900 page first draft of <laughs> written by Zelda. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no kidding. And uh, Mason in the Dark, uh, it's a simple one, but I think reading it aloud to yourself really helps. Yeah. Trying to craft it so it sounds natural and not just characters saying things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I don't know whether this is true or not, but it seems to me that um, something that is easier to say is easier to, well, easier is not the right word, but if it's smooth when you say it, if, if the, you know, the repetition of consonants and the types of vowels, it, 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 I don't know if it maps on exactly, but it probably stylistically, when it's written, it, it, it also reads more smoothly or, or whatever effect you're going for. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, often it's hard like, to identify the, the clunkiness of not just dialogue, but just your prose without actually reading it out loud. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting to see a, you know, a, a more rigorous study on that, whether, whether reading a bunch of Ks in a kind of chunk, mm -hmm. kind of clots up the same way it does if you try to say it. You know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. Uh, Chris said, uh, Wilder's writing will do that. Sunset Boulevard mm. and Double Idemony are an incredible one-two punch. Isn't Sunset Boulevard, that's Lynch's favorite film, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I could yeah. see why. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it's Oliver's work, too, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. And our friend Layla had a question. Uh, are they recommending McKee for uh, novel fiction writing? I notice his books mention stage and screenplay. What do you think, Mike, as someone who was sort of forced to take it? 
<laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm glad it was it was healthy medicine. Um, no, I mean, I think I think a lot of the principles uh, in there are are directly transposable. If anything, screenplays are more like expressly kind of focused on utility. So in a way, you're seeing the skeleton of story really clearly. Mm -hmm. um, and then the prose and, and everything that comes with prose fiction, I guess, whatever, if I'm going to complete this metaphor, I don't want to say it's the mus muscles or something. But yeah, the a screenplay, sort of, for me, it is a kind of skeletal, really clear, distilled form of story because a director looking at a screenplay has to be able to play with it and see exactly how does this thing move? How does this thing work? How is it going to work? Um, I don't know. That's, that's the way I see it anyway, but. Yeah, agreed. And, but the only problem I find with McKee is the book itself. I don't know if it's that well organized. No. Like you kind of have to take all of his insights and reconstruct them in a way that works for you. I think they're probably better how-to books. Um, maybe John Truby's book. John T-R-U-B-Y. That's a, I found that one really useful. It's it's also a, a screenwriting book, but I found it really applicable and really accessible. Da, how about Dara Marks, Mike? <laughs> don't get me started. I mean, I, I don't want to throw shade at Dara Marks, but um, she has this really strong... Uh, okay, so th th I think that there is something to be said for writing that's focused on theme. And I've seen a lot of films and read a lot of novels that are... Uh, like expressly theme focused and they're incredible but I think that her um, her book is kind of anchored to the kind of uh, foundational role of theme you have to be expressing or articulating some theme for me as a writer that's just not at all intuitive and it's not the kind of writing I want to do like I'm not here to tell you something I'm not here to teach you something like I hate that shit so I don't know uh, yeah, I could say more about Darmarks, but I don't know. It's kind of esoteric. Yeah, you, and you know, another one that I think uh, some of my students anyway find really useful is Save the Cat. Save the Cat yeah, yeah, with an ex yeah. exclamation point. Mm -hmm. Now, originally that was a, a screenwriting kind of protocol, but there is a, there's an adaptation called Save the Cat Writes a Novel. I can't remember the author off the top, but um, a, lot of, a lot of students have found that really really helpful, a kind of shortcut yes, into the craft that would otherwise take so long to, to get a handle on. Mm -hmm. There's there's no shortage of narrative or, or story structure books out there, that's for sure. But McKee kind of, well, no, I guess Sid Field kind of started it, but McKee kind of yeah. really blew it up for everyone. Sid Field's the screenplay Save the Cat, right? But he didn't do the no, novel one? Sid Field was, I can't remember the name of it, but it was pre-Save the Cat, pre-McKee. Oh, okay. And it was, a, it was kind of the first popular screenwriting manual, mm. I, I think. Mm. Maybe not the first, but one of the first. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, the Save the Cat novel book is, is helpful to look at, too, for sure. Yeah, mm. yeah. And Austin said, thank you all for the very, that was very interesting and informative. I wouldn't have thought of uh, things that way back, uh, but that was really helpful. Oh, thank you. Awesome. And Jonathan is just sliding in to say, hey now. <laughs> and uh, Carla said, I think uh, Damon Knight creating short fiction is also a really good craft book. Mm, I don't know that one. Can, no, can I write it down? Of course. <laughs> I... <laughs> Damon Knight. 
that's well, a thank, thank you, Carlos. That's uh, really helpful. It's a good name for a horror writer, Damon Knight. Hey, I think it's a Tales from the Crypt movie too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think he knows Sutter Kane. Yes, Michael Knight's twin brother. That was that was reaching back. That was a Knight Rider reference. Oh, the wait, the Romero movie? No, the seventies TV show. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh. Okay. It was Hasselhoff's character Michael? Yeah, Knight? Michael. Or was Michael. the car the car's first name was Michael? <laughs> no, the car oh. was Kit, I think. Kit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Come a long way, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so mentioning movies, uh, I think you mentioned. I forget which one of you mentioned you saw Halloween. What are your yeah. uh, the latest Halloween movie? I'd seen it. I, I think Mike has as well. I was curious. About five minutes in, I thought, I'm curious to know what Mike thinks about this. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Hmm. I mean, I, I read a lot of critics saying that they thought the first half hour was interesting and then it sort of devolved, but I seem to have had an opposite reaction where the more it kind of came apart at the seams and got weirder and weirder, the more interesting I found it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I liked the risks that it took. I don't think it all works. I, I do appreciate the kind of... Um, no holds barred viciousness of the David Gordon Green movies, even though for some reason they're so brutal, but I find the violence has no impact and I'm not sure what that's about. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I, I like to some extent, I can't not enjoy a movie that has Michael Myers stock and slash sequences scored by John Carpenter. Like I'm just, yeah. I'm a man of simple taste. So yeah, yeah, I liked it on some level, but how about you? Totally. Yeah, I when I saw that it was coming out and kind of hearing early things about it, I rolled my eyes. But then as soon as it's in theaters, I'm like, well, I need to go see it. I can appreciate them trying to do something different with uh, a character and with a story that's just been... I think that's, if you're counting the zombie movies too, the, what, like the 13th in that Halloween oh, saga. Um, so it was cool to see a different spin on it. Uh, it felt kind of like Halloween fan fiction. Um, I don't know. It had it, its moments, but not my favorite thing. Yeah, it's a weird. But yeah, moment. if I if if it's October and I find myself in a theater and I get to hear the Carpenter score while looking at even in the opening credits when there's just the the pumpkin rotating, I don't that know. That was the best part of the movie. Worth actually. the price of admission for me is yeah that first five minutes. The popcorn I had was also really good. Uh, <laughs> nothing. Yeah, it was fine. Good seat easy access to an aisle so there were definitely perks of the experience yeah. how did you feel about the express christine shout outs corey cunningham yeah that's, that's how i felt about them <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't think i'm the horror fan that, that you two are but i am um, i'm very interested in some of the effects of horror and, and trying to learn from it and, and i thought of as you're speaking i thought of neil's Neil's book, There are Wolves Here Too, because one thing that really, by the way, that's a great book and everyone should get Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so it's because it's not just, it's not just noir. I mean, it is very noirish and it's not just coming of age, but there's something kind of at the core, at the heart of that book that to me is very horror. And I don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, no spoilers, but there's this, repeating image of a ravine and repeating setting of a ravine. And, you know, for all that I blab on about narrative craft and story, what I'm most interested in 
when it comes to story is somehow when it's a good story and you know it's well crafted and everything but somehow at the heart of that story there's something that is almost inexplicable so you know like like the whale and moby dick or the ravine and there are wolves here too so i wonder if you guys um have any thoughts about what writers of all types might learn from horror maybe not even horror writers per se Hmm. Hmm. thanks for yeah thanks for your thoughts on that and your like i i love that you enjoyed the book um i think the the horror undertones kind of found their way in um naturally and it really wasn't something that i where i went oh i want to write something that's noir and coming of age but also has this sort of undercurrent of horror but i think it works well with coming of age because that is the the time of your life when you're in your sort of early adolescence where you really believe in the supernatural and these these certain uh places in your life can have these very sort of ominous and magnetic pulls to them right like everyone remembers like that the haunted house in their neighborhood when they were a kid or like those the the kind of like forbidden places where you're like oh bad things happen there so i thought it was something that lent itself well to the other two genres i was playing with but and there is something about the way like you capture that childlike point of view in the book that's just so it's so convincing and it's so real um like not only does it have this kind of vivid flashback for me of around the time i was growing up but even that like i i remember randy and i were both just celebrating the the swimming pool sequence i've never read a sequence that reminded me so much of that (laughs) very specific setting at that very specific age it's it is that there's a kind of like vivid intake of input and experience when you're a kid that's it's hard to translate into writing i find and you just like you just nailed that yeah thanks man i'm glad you guys think so that was what i was most uh nervous about i think while i was writing it i felt like with this book i had a lot more uh, i was juggling a lot more with this one than i was with only pretty damned which i think is a bit more streamlined uh comparatively Uh yeah but thank you Mike, what do you, I mean, you being the guy who's like the, the horror virtuoso, I think, what do you think about other writers learning things from horror? Learning what from else, what else, what can writers take from, from horror? I what mean, can, I guess... what can the shopaholic confessions of a shopaholic take from <laughs> uh, Halloween, Halloween four? <laughs> um, well, that's a very specific question, Neil. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, something that always interests me that I brought up in many essays and many conversations is that horror is the only genre named after its desired affect. So that's really interesting. Thinking about the role of affect, the role of emotional response when you're reading, uh, this is always at play in genres, but horror is the only one named after that, um, kind of aspiration or goal, I guess you could say so. Um, yeah, the role of affect, the role of atmosphere. Um, Mm -hmm. and I also think horror uh, to me by virtue of its kind of excesses and its refractions away from customary day-to-day reality, it's better able to access really uncomfortable truths in a very direct way. Um, and that's what I'm after in fiction is, is that place of discomfort, that place of uneasiness, that place of voyeurism. Um, so I, I think for me, horror does that best. Although 
Something else we've all talked about a lot is how noir and horror are very closely aligned in that they're two genres that quite frequently fly in the face of the idea of having a protagonist whose agency drives the plot. Usually it's a kind of about a dissolution of agency or yeah, a dissolution yeah. of Lots self. Of yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So I don't know. Should we go on about that? Well, it's a fascinating topic. Well, it's, it's fascinating for us anyway. <laughs> Someone out there. But yeah, and as I was listening to you talk, I was reminded again that there are certain genres, like like standard genres, right? Like like listed on the bookstore short bookstore shelf as such. But there are certain genres like noir and horror that they're just not quite like other narratives, right? Because the if you if you're thinking about narrative from a scientific neuroscientific point of view, narratives are, well, I believe anyway, narratives are, or the narrative form has been selected for, and it's probably the primary way that we organize information, including our own memories. And it's a way to, the story form is a way to simplify and manage and navigate what is otherwise a total excess, you use the word excess, a total excess of input and so it's interesting that you have these two recognizable genres that are popular and that have established audiences where the almost the whole point is to find that weird balance between the, the regular story form, like the non-negotiable aspects that have to be there for story, like you mentioned, agency. Characters have to have some agency. Mm -hmm. and But balance that with just enough, like, kind of demolition of narrative. Uh, whether that's excess or loss of agency, or in the case of the ravine in, in Neil's latest novel, just a place where you can't really like what's going on. You can feel the intensity, but you don't have the words to describe it. And indeed, there probably are no words to describe it. It's, it, it escapes both the linguistic and the narrative forms altogether. Now you go too far in that direction and then you don't have a genre anymore, right? Then it's something experimental. Mm -hmm. But you lose it altogether or you lose too much of it and you don't have horror mm -hmm. or you don't have noir. So they're, they're interesting genres. I think they're quite different than, than just about everything else. And, mm -hmm. and I think, Neil, you'd be a good one to talk about this, but I think that's what distinguishes noir from all of the sister forms under the umbrella of crime fiction right? mm -hmm. yeah i mean are you thinking then in terms of just like we talked about the lack of agency or loss of agency are you thinking in terms of just like structurally as well because if you think of like traditional yeah. mysteries as well um you know whether it's a cozy or even certain detective stories part of the appeal for people is the the puzzle uh, that you're getting right whereas in noir yeah. it's just supposed to be like the structure of a person's life at times, right? And the structure of the story itself just yeah. kind of floating and uh, spiraling into chaos, which there again, I think is another overlap into to horror as well, right? Like there's, yeah. I think there's shades of that actually in Mike's novel, Shelter for the Damned as totally. well. And you look at um, just the, the spiral that the protagonist takes from the beginning of the story to as he's drawn into the shack and it's just this total like plunge into the chaos. Yeah, or and even, I, I was thinking... Even, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to make another groping in the darkness comment. It's not even... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's let's go with whatever you were going to say. 
Well, I was just, as you were speaking, I was also thinking of so many of those um, just weird scenes in Jim Thompson novels. So, yeah. so Jim Thompson being like a, a, one of the probably two really classic noir writers. And sometimes it just, things just go crazy. Like they get so surreal. And there's a breakdown in the point of view and there's a, a breakdown in the narrative. And I, you know, I can't remember the title of that book where the kid... Uh, never mind. I don't Is it want the it. getaway? Are you thinking the getaway? The getaway, yes. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. Remember the ending of the getaway? It's absurd. Like, it's, it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I horrifying. Mean, yeah, and it's yeah. a huge, huge influence on Shelter for the Damned. Like at Jim Thompson, oh. that was like my model. I, yeah, it was yeah. pro style and just in terms of that dissolution of everything. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the end of the getaway is a or uh, a hell of a woman. Have you guys read that one? Oh yeah, yes. where yeah, yeah right. Uh -huh. um, yeah, fuck, he's so good. And it's fascinating because I mean I, I think the narrative structure is um, almost by definition um, a way to process information that provides comfort and security, and sort of the ability to manage. And, and shape information. So even if it's a like a super violent thriller or something, it's got that comfort to it, right? And, and readers will yeah. expect that. Horror, as you were saying, Mike, not so much. And and noir noir readers too will will allow you to kind of stray from that narrative comfort in a way that I think no other genre other than horror and perhaps some comedy uh, yeah. will, right? Hmm. I think noir is maybe even more dependent on that descent and dissolution because there are, there are horror novels where the monster is defeated at the end. True. Um, and aside from like some Hayes Code noir adaptations, that sort of flies in the face of noir, doesn't it? Or am I mistaken? You know better than me, Neil. Um, sorry, the Hayes Code. I, yeah, I know so, the Hayes so, Code. Does it fly in the... Oh, yeah, totally. Where they're Like trying happy to impose, endings. Yeah, they're trying to impose <laughs> order onto it. Yeah, and those... Yeah, that's exactly it, I think. Which is why so many films from that era, I think they they just become lost and sometimes it's like the remaining 10 seconds of the film, right? Where you just get you just get thrown for a loop and you're, oh my God, what's happened to the protagonist? This is the most bizarre story ever. How did he get away with this? And you're, you're just left with all these questions and then off screen, there will be like the sound of a siren, a gunshot. And <laughs> looks like we got him, fellas. Like, <laughs> too bad he didn't learn that crime doesn't pay. Or something like that. It, 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 I, and there's a certain kitsch factor, I think, with those hilarious tacked on endings. But yeah, it does really, I think, defy what the genre is supposed to be. Hmm. You bringing yeah. up a hell of a woman too, Mike. Oh, sorry to cut you off. No. I just, um, oh, just in terms of like, what the hell is going on? I reread that. I reread that one recently, and I forgot just how bizarre that ending is. Oh, but yeah. That's... Recommended for anyone who hasn't read it. A Hell of a Woman by Jim Thompson. It's just yeah. you start Massive off with a door-to-door -door salesman, and you end up <laughs> somewhere far, far, far from that. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. I cut you off though. No, it's, I was just going to mention that all, all these uh, to anyone watching or listening, all the links to their websites are in the description. So. Go check out their books. And I also wanted to ask you, Anil, about, I want to be sure I get this right, but your first, your debut, Only Pretty Damned, was shortlisted for the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize for Literary Fiction. I wanted to ask you what that was like for you. Oh, yeah, that was really cool. That was an unexpected surprise. Um, I actually found out about that because one of my favorite uh, fellow crime authors um, and a, just a stellar uh, author all around, uh, Sam Weeb from Vancouver, 
sent me a Twitter message just saying, hey, congratulations. And I don't think there was any context beyond that. So I just remember this was right in the, the thick of the first wave of COVID. And I remember just checking that and going like, congrats for what? And then he clarified and then I looked into it. But yeah, it was cool to get nominated for that. I was in um, the, the other books that were nominated and the, the book that won as well. Who Now that I'm on the spot, I totally can't remember the name. Um, Fry, Flying Plantation? I forgot, I'd have to look it up. Um, but just so many stellar books. It was just cool to be in that category and get that little, uh, the spotlight for a brief amount of time on that one. But yeah, it was just very cool. <laughs> and on the topic of horror, I wanted to ask all of you what the appeal of horror is to you. What What about the genre is it that you, you enjoy? Horror. <laughs> horror, yeah. ah that's a hard one eh because it's it's weird when you think the three of us have actually talked about this quite a bit what why would we like are we so maladjusted that we could only write and really only like to read (laughs) these really down endings (laughs) the answer is yes yeah that's right yes 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 i love i love the in both horror and noir and and other narratives i just love the uh hopeless unraveling of things i I don't want it to be put back together i I don't really know why i don't know what that says about me but i'm not looking for that um tidy bow at the end that makes me sigh and think okay everything's all right in that world Uh, i just want to be sort of driven out into the now i'm searching for a metaphor driven out into the dark countryside and thrown out the the door on a moonless night <laughs> where there are wolves howling beyond the Mesa. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Cause I, I agree with all of that, but a weird thing for me is like in real life, I, I, I'm really anxious. I don't want disorder. I want everything. I want to know how everything's going to go. Sometimes to a fault, I really have to kind of manufacture things so that I'm safe, so that I'm not going to, I'm like, I'm always like thinking at any moment's notice, I could end up on the streets. It's just like, I have this kind of anxiety and paranoia. And yet I find comfort in fiction that is so dependent on anxiety and paranoia and fear and disorder. So I don't know what the hell that's about. There's something like, I actually find horror very comforting. Yeah. Um, The joys of escapism, hey? Yeah. Escaping into horror. It's a weird concept. Yeah, for as long as I can remember, I loved horror movies and, and books, even like whether it was, you know, being like eight or nine and actually seeing like a slasher movie for the first time or when I was younger and you watch like the little kid Saturday morning cartoon version of horror, which is like the animated tales from the crypt. Um, I've just always been really and I think, Mike, you've mentioned similarly too, just like fascinated and intrigued by the macabre. And mm-hmm. um yeah, there's something really magnetic about just that total disorder, chaos. I don't know. It, it's, I can't really put my finger on why, though, either. Just the, the fact that, you know, you find some degree of comfort in watching things and reading things that rile you up and induce anxiety and fear. I don't know. Maybe it's just something we've taught ourselves. Who knows? But it does, doesn't it also feel like, I don't know, for me, it's like it's always been there. I've just always liked dark yeah. shit. I don't know why. It's just <laughs> I've been I've been drawn to it. I don't know. Like, I was born yeah. this way. Yeah. 
<laughs> I don't want to sound uh, too like I've been I've been emotional and goth from a very young age. But when I was a kid, I had a treehouse, and it was a long like I'm talking four years old, a long battle with my parents as to why I couldn't paint the inside of it black. <laughs> like you can't see anything in there, and I wanted it to be like Skeletor's castle. So eventually, they relented, and uh, I think it just became filthy because I couldn't see anything that needed to be cleaned or tidied up. So. In that sense, too, it was a win. (laughs) I'm not trying to sound like I'm like Robert Smith from The Cure. (laughs) Very like sitting there with my uh, like nest of hair brooding in the darkness. But I don't know, like just to echo Mike's sentiment, it's just a fascination that's always been there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Aaron had a question. What horror movie or book scared you the most? Well, for me, it was, uh, I, I wasn't allowed to watch any movies when I was a kid. But I had one cousin, I lived in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. And I had one cousin who lived um, a little bit north of me in a, in a city called Calgary. And sometimes I would get to go up to his house and just stay there without my parents. And he could, at least in my opinion, he could do anything, including watch movies at night. So... When I was, I, I can't remember exactly how young I was, but one night after his parents were in bed, we watched The Exorcist. And I don't think I slept for 10 years after that. I mean, it just fucked me up. Sorry, am I allowed to swear on it? Yeah, you're, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> it just messed me right up. That'd be the first swear ever on YouTube, Randy. That uh, would be. Across the new threshold. Yeah. I'm glad to confirm because I've been swearing constantly. So, <laughs> I mean, The Exorcist seems to be like universally everyone saw it way too young. I was 12, I think, when I saw it. Like I snuck downstairs and watched it uh, as part of, there used to be something called Friday Night Frightmare on the Space oh, Channel. Do you remember that, Neil? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, it just like fundamentally shook me to the core so yeah. I, can't, I can't think of anything beyond seeing the exorcist at age 12 to <laughs> do something yeah that one's still a, a staple for me i've always loved that i think the first one that truly terrified me was i had a friend when i was eight in grade three and uh i just remember going to a sleepover at his house and his parents were like you're allowed to watch r-rated movies right and like <laughs> Like as as though like they were confirming something that was obvious. So eight year old me just went yes, uh, of course. <laughs> and um, so we watched the Halloween four, and then we watched Alien, and um, the Thing. So those were that was very trial by fire. And then I also didn't. I think my, the pouches under my eyes all came from that one night. <laughs> yeah, that's when hey, Randy you... woke up with a beard the next morning after. The <laughs> and it was awesome. black the night before. Yeah. <laughs> A Lord of Darkness was another one for me. No. Oh, yeah. heart, um, the Carpenter. Prince, Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness. Yeah. Darkness. Uh-huh. yeah that's... That was another one I watched. And I was, wasn't as young. but I have a weird one. And I wonder if either of you guys, any of you can relate to this. E.T. terrified me as a kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I could see that. Yeah, it's kind of directed like a horror scene at times. Like when Elliot is... Like paralyzed with fright, he's trying to call his brother, but he's so scared that his voice won't come out. And you see this little squat potato-y thing. Yeah. He's creeping toward him. Potato-y. Like, yeah, yeah. What the fuck, man? <laughs> um, 
yeah, <laughs> that comes to that. And I had nightmares about ET. Uh, so that's another one. I, similarly, in terms of maybe things that weren't supposed to scare you, but did. Um, I don't know if you remember the War Amps commercials where there was the droid that's sort of jumping through the gears and circuitry. <laughs> And it cuts its arm off and it goes, I can put my arm back on. You can't. <laughs> I was haunted by this. And it was just for like, uh, it was an advertisement for playing safe. Um, but I, I hallucinated it this one time when I got this fever when I was also very young. And I thought this, this armless droid was chasing me around the house. That was really only created, I think, to encourage children to play safe. But it's terrifying. If you haven't, I don't, I don't know if it's, yeah, but you were safe. Uh, yeah, it's true. I'm both my arms still, but if uh, it might be a Canadian TV thing, but look on YouTube for, I'm sure if you looked up like war amps, robot, 1980s, <laughs> you'll see how it could scar a child for sure. Sid and Nancy really scared me too. So oh yeah. Horror, but, hmm. I don't know. Uh, maybe not. It distressed me. Yeah. yeah. Killer clowns from outer space scare the shit out of me. I, I don't know. It's supposed to be a funny movie, but it, I was, yeah. Wow. Set me kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> Strange one. Just the way that they move in that movie, just that kind of jittery puppet uh, movement of the eras. There's something unsettling about that for sure. Yeah. 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 Some sleepless nights after that. Uh, Chris said, uh, horror movies are a genre that encourage creativity at their core. The vicious and nasty play with the fun and inventive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Carlos said a good noir no- novel that Barry Gilf- Gifford recommended is Black Wings Has My Angel by Elliot Chase. I'm going to write that something. one. Yeah, we'll do the same thing. I don't know that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, me too, Mike. I'm very sm- soothed by horror. I think that's Megan. I think, uh, if Megan, if that's you, hey, Megan. Glad to know I'm not alone. Uh, makes me feel better to see, uh, read the worst thing that could possibly happen. I hear a lot of true crime fans feel the same way about that. <laughs> yeah, could be. I find true crime stuff comforting too. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And it's real. That's what's so weird about it that we find I know. It comforting. Yeah. Uh, Carl said, "Poltergeist." Always love that one. They're here. Mm-hmm. Masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, and b- before uh, before we wrap up, Randy, I wanted to ask you and, and Neil too. Is uh, you, you were in a, a band together, and I wondered how oh, the yeah. music industry has changed over the course of the last several years. If you know, because you were uh, very popular in indie radio, and I wonder how it's how that's changed over the course of the last however many years. Well, um, I, I guess it depends how many years we're going back, but. Man, Neil, is, has it ever changed since the advent of, uh, well, first of all, digital technology completely revolutionized um, the music industry because now I, like I have a studio, this, this is part of my basement studio, and I now have a, you know, a digital version of what would it cost, I don't know, 500000 probably half a million dollars in the 70s and, and early 80s. So, so one thing is that... Um, has become a lot more do-it-yourself, a lot more DIY. And then the, that uh, digital and, um, you know, in the in the realm of the interwebs, just put that whole thing on steroids, right? So, so bands c- can have so much, and uh, musicians and, for that matter, artists of all types can have so much control over their career. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think the downside of that is now there are so many musicians that um, 
you almost can't see the the uh, the good stuff for the noise, or it's hard, you know, because the, the, there aren't there aren't the kind of filters that there used to be. So it's a bit of good and a bit of bad. I, I think mm -hmm. much more good than bad myself. I'm I'm willing to wade through a lot of dross on, say, SoundCloud to find that one genius somewhere in Brazil who's making some bizarre music mm -hmm. that I just love and I would have never heard of otherwise. Yeah. I love that. So hard to filter through everything though, hey? Like just there's yeah. so there's such an abundance of stuff out there. It's it's nuts. Yeah. Um, for context, I was going to say too, for, for Randy and I playing together, when Randy wrote Arctic Smoke, just being the prolific human being that he is, he wanted to do a musical soundtrack for mm. his novel. Um, so I'd, I'd played bass in just a handful of, I wouldn't even say the term industry applies uh, in what I did, because I think industry sort of suggests some sort of monetary compensation. <laughs> but um, I've just been playing in like um, playing and touring in a small capacity and just um, punk bands for the last, I don't know, since I was 18 or so. Um, but Randy came up with these where they like it was we were, we were kind of, it was kind of like performative as well. Right. Like we were kind of caricatures. Mm -hmm. well, to an extent yeah so i played bass on a couple of the tracks but randy just um being someone who can play like eight trillion instruments had just come <laughs> up with all these really cool musical ideas and i played bass on i think three or four of them um but that was a blast and then going to this very small studio uh and recording it was yeah it was just so cool the amount that randy can do with just a very small and limited amount of equipment but just like knowing your stuff so well just blew me away it was very cool recording that stuff. You wrote one of the tunes. I can't oh yeah, what yeah. It's called, but yeah, me neither. But I did. I think I came up with the basis of one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. It was it's, fun. It's, yeah. Oh yeah, that was a blast. It was very cool. It's funny you guys mentioned that there's there's so much music out there because I I hear people say there's no good music anymore. It's like well, if you listen oh. to the radio or popular, you're not going to find it. You have to look for it. It's but yeah. it, there's a ton of music out there. Oh, it's there's more and better music out there, I think, ever than ever. And uh, I think, you know, part of the thing is um, kids by kids. I mean, you know, anyone under the age of 20, as they're in their their formative years composing and learning, they, they, they look up stuff on YouTube and there's this kind of resonance or feedback where they can develop so much more fully than we ever could have. And they come up with fascinating new subgenres and mashups. And mm -hmm. there's, you're right, there's just so much good stuff out there. It's just a matter of, it's difficult to find or can be difficult. It can mm -hmm. be easy too. Uh, Spectre said, same here with seeing R rated movies around eight years old from whenever oh. HBO first started. <laughs> thanks, HBO. Uh, thanks, HBO. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I recently saw Sharp Objects on, on HBO for the first time. I think I was telling both of you guys on it. That one actually really scared me, hmm. which is a, a an experience I don't have that much anymore. Hmm. That's with um, Amy Adams, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I sort of saw the ending coming, but at the same time, just the way it was shot and edited, uh, it terrified me. Hmm. Yeah, I remember you giving me a heads up about that, and I couldn't have prepared myself for what it was. I remember just yeah. like shooting up from my seat and... <laughs> I hadn't had such a such a response to something like that for a very long time. <laughs> Thanks, HBO. Like, yeah. Me, thank you. <laughs> uh, Lewis, I can't remember the movie that scared me, but the book Communion by uh, Whitley Stiebler creeped me out. 
I got rid of it the day I finished it and haven't read it, looked at it since. <laughs> the movie adaptation of that is great. I haven't read the book, but the Chris Walken movie from 89, I think. Really good. Oh, yeah. Hmm, Weird cool. movie. He's like dancing with aliens at the end. Um, <laughs> it's very trippy. Very, it's like almost a psychedelic movie. Huh. Uh, Spectre said, yes, Poltergeist, I'm afraid of toy clowns under my bed. <laughs> clowns will always be creepy. Who was the first one to figure that out? Like, you, you sort of think um, Stephen King and It, but it, somebody before that must have thought, man, clowns, there's just something wrong with that. Did anyone ever not realize it? Like, how would someone <laughs> think covering their face in white paint and leering at children? Yeah, like, how was that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. not my kind of fun. <laughs> oh, you're so uh, welcome. Yeah. Oh, Thanks thank again you, for Austin. the insight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but just also, my grandpa Ooh. told us scary ghost stories before bed. The one that the ghost hand under your bed, waiting to get you. Yeah. Go, grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, grandpa. Yeah. Well, I think we could talk. We can go on forever, but I know you you all have stuff you have to do, and I want to respect your time. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming to hang out. It's been just a total blast. So. Uh, but Randy, where can people uh, find you? Where can work is the best place to connect with you? Uh, probably just go to my website. It's Randy Nickelschroeder, all one word, dot com. That's probably the the easiest. Or you, I think you could find me quite easily on Facebook or any of the others. Yes. Twitter and all all the links are in the description too. So anybody watching oh. or listening, yeah. And Mike, where's the best place to find you? Uh, website is MikeThornWrites.com. I'm Mike Thorne writes on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on Twitter a fair bit, so that's probably the easiest. I'm also on Facebook. So, yeah, all over this thing we call the Internet. <laughs> and, Neil, where can people find your, your new book, There Are Wolves Here uh, Now, too? Um, you can get it at, well, I mean, in Canada, like Chapters and Indigo would have it. I'd encourage anyone, if uh, they are willing to check it out, to get it from an independent bookstore wherever they live. Um, <laughs> You can get it at Lex Luthor's Book Emporium, a.k.a. Amazon. I think Jeff Bezos has a few copies right now. Um, but yeah, just the usual places that books are sold. And then you can find me online. I just do Twitter. So my name at Twitter or I'm on Instagram as well. So if you, I think if you search me up, there's uh, either my photo will come up or I think there's a like a, a young Irish juggalo that has like the same name. So, <laughs> so just choose the one that looks like me. Um, and yeah, that would be a handle. <laughs> Neil, you can, you can get Neil's book from the new West. Oh yeah. Duh, well. geez, sorry. A horrible yeah. salesperson here. Yeah. New West press, which is the publisher that put out Randy and I's books. Um, yeah, you can get it directly from the publisher. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, thank you all again so much. I really, really, really thank appreciate you, you taking, you, taking some time to yeah. kind of hang out and chat horror show. and books. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. it. Let's do it again soon. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Randy. Yeah. Much appreciated. Yeah. And thanks yeah. everyone who came by to interact with us in the chat. It's always great when we have the back and forth. So thank, thank you. you for spending your Friday evening with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Hope everyone has a great weekend. Okay. So thanks. long.